Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the So What File podcast. This is your host, Prashal Aboud. I am so delighted and honored to speak with Simon Reich, Professor in the Global Affairs and Department of Political Science at Rutgers, Newark. Professor Reich is also a prolific author and co-author of 13 books and over 60 articles or book chapters. I May I also add an awesome professor. <laughs> <laughs> His most recent book is a brand new co-authored volume with Peter Dombrowski entitled Across Type, Time, and Space, American Grant Strategy and Comparative Perspective, which we will be discussing um, briefly in a few minutes. Professor, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today and congratulations on your new book. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to join you. Thank you. Our topic today is grant strategy, but I want to start with President Biden's recent America is back trip to Europe and his meeting with Putin. President Biden was looking to rally his allies, revive American credibility, reaffirm the U.S.'s commitment to NATO, as well as discuss the challenges concerning China and Russia. Did, did he make any headway and what were the main takeaways from the three and a half hour meeting with Putin? Uh. That's a great question to start with. And, um, you know, I, I would say that the, the major damage that was done uh, in terms of allied relations within NATO and in Europe more generally during the Trump administration uh, presented Biden with a series of problems uh, that he tried to address during the meeting. Uh, the various different meetings uh, with NATO, with the EU, and and, and he tried to uh, lay out a new strategy with Putin. I think you can divide uh, between these three uh, uh, into at least two segments. Uh, the fundamental issue that the United States faces with its European allies at the moment is one of trust. And uh, the America is back uh, for him implied uh, that America was once again multilateralist, uh, but uh, also uh, a, a, first, a first amongst equals uh, that um, uh, the United States would play a leadership role uh, in, in NATO and in dealing with Europe more generally. So where was he successful and what are the residual problems associated with that? Well. Where he was successful is developing a more cordial relationship. There was um, a Pew survey that was published this week online that uh, your uh, listeners can, can go and find if they're interested about how people feel about America now as compared to under the Trump administration. And the, diff, you know, the statistics in terms of the differences are quite startling. Um, there's been massive improvement in America's image abroad and that's marvelous from an American leadership perspective. But, because of course in foreign policy there's always a but. The residual but is that um, Europeans still remain deeply worried that this is a temporary situation. That what we're facing potentially in the future is a next Republican administration that is Trumpist in its attitudes and that all the success that Biden may have may fall by the wayside if we get Republicans back in, in Congress and in the presidency itself. In terms of Putin, it's much harder to assess what the outcomes are. Um, unlike his predecessors, uh, George W. Bush, Obama, and Trump himself, Biden has lots of experience in dealing with foreign affairs. And um, therefore, the comments, the noises that were being made by both sides, by both Biden and Putin, uh, were very diplomatic and they sounded potentially at least promising. But, you know, we've been here before with Putin, right? Uh, Obama tried to, quote, reset the relationship with Russia and it failed abysmally. Um, it's hard to know what the relationship was with Russia under Trump because his adoration for Putin was so evident that, you know, it was it was hard to, to know where this was going. Um, I don't think much will come out of these meetings. Certainly there was lots of agreements to disagree on things like human rights. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But I think when both of them were standing there and smiling and nodding, 
uh, it's no indication of where that relationship is going. I think there's still enormous distrust between the two. Um, I hope to be proven wrong and that they can you know, mutually manage things like uh, the issue of Iran or nuclear proliferation. But it's still much too early to tell what will come from that meeting. Well, as you stated, um, President Biden was attempting to highlight his vision for how the United States will re-engage with the world in a post-America uh, first slash Trumpist agenda. Um, how will or how should the, the European Union embrace his democracy agenda after the last administration and the current European Union's desire to maintain cooperation with China on trade? Yeah, right. It, it, it... It's fascinating to see how this plays out, um, bearing in mind the lack of European trust, not necessarily in Biden, but in terms more broadly about where America is going. Uh, I think that the, uh, the Europeans are embarking on what uh, is described in the literature as a hedging strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, they will side with the United States on issues like security. Uh, but they will also search for common ground with the Chinese in other areas like climate change or the whole broad issue of digitalization, you know, which includes various aspects of technology, yes. uh, on infrastructural development. There, there's a whole series of issues where they will try and find accommodative grounds with the Chinese. And so while the Biden administration would like a kind of consistent allied position vis-a-vis -vis China. They made that very clear, right, in the context of the meeting. It's hard to see how that's going to play out effectively in the next four years. Uh, I think that Americans will ultimately be satisfied on some issue areas with the Europeans, uh, but on others, they're going to find it deeply frustrating to deal with the United, uh, to, to, uh, in terms of dealing with the Europeans. So at the core of, of uh, Biden's um, outlook and his uh, national security strategy is the perspective that democracy is in competition with authoritarianism. Is, yeah. he, accurate, is he accurate in his assessment? Well, listen... Foreign policy, like all politics, sometimes is, is, is marked by bumper stickers, right? Yes. America is back is a bumper sticker. It sounds great, right? And it sort of implies to a willing audience the kind of notions that they want to hear. Um, when it comes to the issue of trust about the United States uh, amongst the Europeans, there is no trust in American democracy at the moment. And that's quite understandable, right, after the... Uh, presidential elections and the aftermath of the capital uh, insurrection, the United States has always seen itself as an exceptional power, a leader in democracy. Uh, but as we know from uh, reading the debates in the newspapers every day about issues like voter suppression, pardon me, voter <laughs> suppression, that's really challenged at the moment. And it's going to be really hard to see uh, yeah, uh, how this plays out. The issue, for example, of Navalny in Russia and uh, the question of Navalny's release, uh, Biden got nowhere on that issue. Now, maybe Putin thinks that that's a bargaining chip that he can trade in for something at some point. Mm -hmm. But uh, for Europeans, again, America looks fragile in an unprecedented way when it comes to democracy. And we're going to have to work our way through that at home uh, before we convince anybody abroad that democracy in the United States is safe. It's, it's, uh, you know, all the debates that are going on in Congress about voter suppression bills in various different <laughs> kinds of states, the Europeans are well informed. They're watching this. Yes, so it kind of like points to uh, certain elements of authoritarianism here in our own country. Right, right. And, 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 you know, coming back to my earlier point, there's a, there's a deep abiding concern if you follow, you know, debates taking place not just within European governments, 
or in the EU, but also in you know big foundations like the Carnegie uh, Foundation in Europe, uh, this kind of thing. There are deep debates about how strong Amer is American democracy, and uh, I, I, the voices of optimism in Europe are, are really being drowned out about this at the moment. You know the the stuff that's been written by uh, various people, Daniela Schwarzer and, uh, is one example, or Rosa Balfour. These are all very senior people within the uh, foundation community, and they're all writing about how problematic this, this issue of democracy is in Europe. And, and I don't think that's going to go away in a hurry. The United States is going to have to deal with these voter suppression bills in an effective way that convinces the Europeans that these are lasting solutions. They're not band-aids, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, be interesting to see how this plays out. Sounds like the United States is at a crossroads right now. Well, certainly, you know, we tend to dramatize these things and we talk about various different crossroads. We, we seem to come across these at least once a decade, right? 2008 and the Great Recession, the Great Financial Crisis, mm -hmm. that was considered a crossroads. Before that, it was 9-11. That was considered a crossroads. Yes. Uh, so it, it's hard to tell, but it feels like it, right? It feels like we're... Uh, uh, encountering a series of crises at the moment, whether it's about racial crises in America, whether it's about the pandemic, which is in many ways related to issues of race uh, in the American press, at least, mm -hmm. whether it's about a changing global structure in which the United States may still be the most powerful nation uh, in the world, but is certainly not the dominant one in a way it was in the immediate Cold War period. We're dealing with an economic crisis that we're trying to dig our way out from. There are at least three or four different crises that seem to suggest that in conjunction, yeah, we're at a crossroads. Well, speaking of changing global structures, um, I want to kind of circle back to Biden's interim national security strategic uh, uh, statement. In his, um, in his interim uh, national security strategic guidance, um, Biden repeatedly points to the importance of waking, uh, working in a common cause and re-strengthening America's role in the world, especially in the face of the growing um, assertiveness of China and Russia. He posits that one way to ensure our national security is to promote a favorable um, distribution of power and to inhibit access to the global commons or the domination of key regions. What would a favorable distribution of power look like in terms of a viable grand strategy? Okay, so so here we here we turn to the issue of grand strategy more generally, and mm -hmm. the the there's sort of like contending ways in thinking about what is a grand strategy, and I think it's useful for our purposes to start off by talking about the sort of key distinction. There's one group that looks at grand strategy in a very narrow sense, national security narrowly defined. And for them, national security is narrowly defined as preparation for the fighting and winning of wars. Mm -hmm. So there's one, there's one side of the fence in the United States, in the scholarly community, but also in the policy community in Washington, right? That wants to focus, that wants to focus uh, on aspect and nothing more. Excuse me, on that particular aspect and nothing more. And for those people. Right. It's uh, a favorable distribution of power uh, is basically divided between those who still believe that the United States is capable of being a dominant or controlling power uh, in a way that it was in at least the first decade after the end of the Cold War. And those who have taken a less sanguine view who say, well, the United States should pursue a strategy known as restraint which is that we can't control the world, we can't uh, necessarily dominate, but what we need to try and do is shape things uh, by not necessarily getting involved in big wars in the Middle East or that kind of thing, but to secure the commercial and security concerns of the United States narrowly defined. So that's one side of the division. The other side of the division is, is, is uh, concerned with a, uh, what we call an IR approach, mm -hmm. 
rather than a classical approach, an international relations approach. And that has a much broader conception <clears throat> of the United States role in the world. It's much more multilateralist, which is characteristic of, of Biden, right? Uh, it's much more engaged and it looks more broadly at strategies to extend beyond security into issues like potentially climate change or public health, as well, of course, as a whole realm of economic issues in which globalization can be harnessed uh, to America's advantage. It's not as coercive as the first formulation. It doesn't rely so much on the military, but the military still plays a major role. But it has a much broader conception of instruments uh, and ideas that really are much more consistent with the way in which Biden is talking about the world. So, I mean, just to kind of clarify a little bit to our listeners, is, is there a difference between grand strategy and foreign policy or are they like intertwined? <clears throat> well, think of it <clears throat> as a series of, uh, I don't know, what's the best metaphor? Arrows mm -hmm. or concentric circles. I don't know which one is, works best. But basically, you start off with grand strategy. This is the most abstract, right? This is a statement of principles and ideas that govern your goals, your objectives, which then relates fairly seamlessly to the notion of the means, which means the instruments that you're going to use, and then relates ultimately to the resources you have. So the big picture stuff is grand strategy. Okay. Then within grand strategy, you have something called strategy, right? A sort of subset. And the strategy is, okay, here are my big principles. How do I apply my big principles to a region, Europe or the Middle East, right? Uh, then you relate that to a further third stage, which is the notion of foreign policy. Okay, so which policies am I going to pursue in the context of, let's say, the Middle East and then Iran, right? And then ultimately, the four stages, what are my tactics? Which is a, the more immediate stuff, like crisis management. When we think about foreign policy in the press, we're largely looking most of the time at tactics, okay? When we start to move away from it, we should be able to see a relationship between our tactics moving backwards and our foreign policy and then our broader strategy and then our grand strategy. So what I work on <clears throat> in my research work is looking at how the sort of big picture image that we'll call grand strategy ultimately relates to the policies that the United States actually pursues. Oh, great. So I guess this is a good time to segue into your latest book about grand strategy. Um, Professor, can you please walk us through um, briefly the main idea of the book? <clears throat> oh, certainly. So <clears throat> if we think about grand strategy in general, um, there are certain series of assumptions that preside in the way in which American scholars think about grand strategy that actually does have an influence on the way in which policymakers think about the world. Um, if we uh, think about somebody like Biden and we say, okay, there's a series of options that we'll call grand strategy. <clears throat> which option does he pursue? He pursues a sort of liberal variant that we've already characterized in some ways as multilateralist. Yes. That is positive sum, meaning you can work with people to achieve mutually beneficial outcomes. A whole series of components there that's, that then inf inform his notion of America's role in the world. And not only its role, but what the goals are and how they can best be achieved and what the instruments are. This work in America on grand strategy really only focuses on three countries. It focuses overwhelmingly on the United States uh, and to a lesser extent on China and Russia. And what lies behind the choice of these three countries these three states, is the notion that other countries can't really have a grand strategy. 
Grand strategies are only for great powers because they assume that grand strategies require two things, a big bureaucracy to formulate the grand strategy and then a big military to implement it. Um, our work therefore says, well, if you're only going to look at these three countries, then there's no real element of comparison here. And if you think about it, it's only those three countries, then every, every other quote unquote smaller country, right, is excluded from this. Candidly, it strikes us as crazy that you could uh, think about all the countries, other countries of the world, whether they're European countries like Germany, whether they're an intergovernmental organization like the EU, or let's say big, big uh, countries in the Asia Pacific like Japan or India and say, these countries don't have a grand strategy. And so what we try and do in our book is introduce or develop a notion that we've been working on in various different fora, which it looks at the notion of comparing grand strategies, how to compare them, how to think about them, not just in theoretical terms, because that's a limited audience, but also just as importantly, in policy terms. Right? Alexander George and Richard Smoke talked about policy science, and policy science is developing ideas and concepts that policymakers can use. So we are trying to bridge the gap between theory and policy in a way that might be helpful to not just academics, but also to policymakers thinking about this issue. Let's go back to Iran for a moment, right? If you, if you think about Iran in a way that the traditional literature does, the notion of the Iranians having a grand strategy uh, is absurd. Or indeed, North Korea. Or indeed, Israel. Now, it strikes me that if you look at the patterns of behavior of any of these three countries for vastly different reasons, you can find key elements of grand strategy that they have employed consistently vis-a-vis -vis the United States and they have employed very successfully, okay? So we have been chasing around, uh, trying to deal with the North Koreans ever since uh, the end of the Korean War in 1952. We have been trying to deal with them and their nuclear ambitions since at least the Clinton administration and made no headway. The same can be said for the Iranians in 1979, since 1979 and the revolution there, right? They, we consistently find ourselves in a situation where these countries, frankly, uh, do extremely well in dealing with the United States. Now ask yourself the question why they do so well. Well, one of the reasons is we don't attach to them a coherence in the way they think about the world we don't attach to them a notion that they have a relationship between the objectives that they have, the instruments that they use, the resources that they therefore accumulate. And so we constantly find ourselves frustrated. What we're trying to do in this work is introduce the notion to Americans generally, whether it's academics or policymakers, or indeed a more general audience, that other countries have stra grand strategies, that we have to carefully study their grand strategies. Instead of pretending they don't exist, we have to not only acknowledge they exist, but study them so that we can understand something about these countries' objectives. I mean, at the moment, let's take go back to the North Korean case. You know, and I, rhetorically ask the question, well, what are the goals of the North Koreans? Do the North Koreans want isolation? Do they want to dominate the politics of Northeastern Europe? Or do they want to actually join the international community, albeit on their own terms? What exactly are their goals? I think that if you think about this in terms of not the day-to-day -day stuff of tactics, 
or even think about it in patterns in terms of foreign policy. But if you start to go behind all of that and say, okay, what are the historical factors that influence the way the Koreans think about the world? Uh, what are the pathologies that they have that might influence what their objectives are? Uh, we might discover ways of analyzing them which will help us diagnostically, right, to think about how to address these kinds of problems. So from your research, um, do you think, I mean, I think you touched upon it a little bit, but is there a difference in grand strategy by regime type? Uh, ah, yeah, that comes back to your authoritarian. And, you know, this is, yeah, and, and, and we do a lot of work on individual countries. Part of our sort of broader project is we have people, uh, we're, we're editing a book series that we're developing with Oxford University Press, and people uh, are writing uh, studies of individual countries, uh, very diverse, from Australia to Mexico to Sweden and Germany, uh, to somebody who's developing a book on Ethiopia. You know, we're trying to do a, a lot of uh, work on a lot of different countries. And essentially, it's nice to think about it as being a breakdown between, between authoritarian and democratic, mm -hmm. but it really doesn't apply in that, in that kind of way. What we have is um, uh, we have this tendency to think that grand strategies are easier to implement, for example, in authoritarian regimes, uh, but it's not really the case. Uh, it would be a, a misnomer, it would be a mistake to, to make that kind of distinction because um, even somebody, let's take somebody like Putin, right, uh, in Russia, he faces all kinds of domestic problems that influence the way in which he makes decisions and influences the way in which he has a capacity to institute, to implement a grand strategy. Essentially, there's a rule of thumb. The rule of thumb is the less we know about a country, the more we ascribe to it a sort of coherence, especially in authoritarian regimes, mm -hmm. that works from the top down. So we have this image of, of you know, Putin playing chess uh, while the rest of us are uh, playing checkers and that he's you know, geostrategically one step ahead of the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Then you go talk to people that work on Russia, and you say, well, what does, you know, Putin's, wor uh, Putin's world look like? And, you know, they'll start telling you about all the problems and the mayhem and the crisis management. Uh, one of the greatest determinants of what Putin can do, for example, is the price of oil, right? I mean, this is an economy that's extremely narrowly based economy in which, in which you have... Um, uh, a dependence on oil and gas. So uh, he is at the mercy of the rise and fall in the price of gas. And he has no control over the price of gas or oil, right? As it goes up and down, the amount of resources he has at his disposal can change very quickly. So in that sense, he is a prisoner just as much to what the Saudi Arabians are doing as one of the world's biggest oil producers and the leader of OPEC, as, as uh, a democracy does. Mm -hmm. So the distinction between authoritarian and, to and, and de democratic really doesn't work that well in that context. Well, how about, um, I think you touched upon this in, in your latest book, um, what role does uh, domestic policy play in grand strategy? Right, right. So, so that traditional kind of work that I was talking about before really makes this, the assumption that the determinant of grand strategy is really the external threats that countries face. Mm -hmm. So from their point of view, domestic politics really doesn't matter. And part of the innovation that we seek to, to consolidate in our work is to say, oh, no, Domestic politics can, can make an enormous difference to the way in which political leaders think about grand strategies, the ones that they choose and how they implement them. 
So there's obviously a simple distinction to be made in this regard between, on the one hand, Trump, who had, uh, to the extent that he had a grand strategy, he had a very nativist one, which had streaks of isolationism running through it, right, which is a former grand strategy in which the United States would strategically disengage uh, from the rest of the world um, in key elements like human rights and democracy that we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, Biden, who comes back, uh, comes in a, a, to, to, to office, right, and immediately not just changes but reverses many of these components. So we go from disengagement in uh, the Paris Accord, right, on climate change, to re-engagement. We go from disengagement with uh, the uh, nuclear arms agreement with the Iranians to re-engagement. So just through a simple change of American presidential leadership by a relatively small percentage of the population, right, in terms of the, the results, in terms of the number of people who shifted from voting Republican to Democrat, yeah. we have seen an enormous shift in America's approach to the world. Analytically, right, when we think about uh, the study of grand strategy more generally, we can look at a whole series of domestic factors, whether you want to call it presidential leadership, or you want to call it bureaucratic infighting, uh, whether you want to call it a shift in values, right, um, and ideas. There are a whole series of things that play themselves out domestically that are not necessarily related to the changing environment in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Nothing much changed in terms of the global system between December and January uh, of 2021. And yet American strategy changed enormously. So when we say domestic factors matter, you know, the question then becomes which domestic factors, when and how, and that's what we're, you know, that's what we advocate studying, right? The when, yeah. the how, the conditions under which they change. They are not the same for each country. Coming back to your question about different types of regimes, right? So uh, in the United States, this plays itself out between political parties. In Iran, it plays its way out between different factions. You have a more, an, a more conservative faction um, uh, led by uh, the traditionalists and the clerics, um, uh, conservative clerics. And then on the other hand, you have, I, I, I stretch to use the term uh, liberal or reformist, but certainly a more accommodationist wing. And those two factions have been vying for power in Iran ever since the revolution and continue to do so. We have Iranian elections coming up, and <clears throat> that, that will be a fight between uh, the representatives of those two different factions. So we can look at any individual country, um, and we can study what factors are. And, you know, that's what some of my doctoral students uh, at, uh, at Rutgers Newark are working on. They write mm -hmm. dissertations in which some of them are looking at foreign policy, as we've talked about it. Some of them are looking at grand strategy. Um, some of them are studying different countries. Some of them are examining the United States. You know, there's a big, wide range of ways in which and uh, that's why they're looking at it. Of course, I just want to stress that not all countries can have a grand strategy, right? Because mm -hmm. some countries will call them failed states, right? They simply lack the resources and the capacity, the institutional capacity to put something together coherent. Um, but you'll find, I would argue, strategies uh, in very interesting places. Um, one of the examples I like to use is Rwanda. Right. So, you know, there might be some prejudice that says, oh, can African countries have a grand strategy? I would suggest if you look at Rwanda, they have a very coherent approach to a variety of issues stretching from national security to public health uh, to economic development. Right. That's really coherent. Uh, if you look at India, uh, there, you know, you find the same kind of coherence with their focus on 
economic development, which has been a consistent central theme rather than national security traditionally defined. So, you know, it, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, right? If you're looking for it, you may find it. That doesn't mean you're going to find it in every African nation, far from it, but you're going to find it in some interesting cases, uh, not necessarily the ones you expect. Well, forgive me for this next question because I pulled this question from your book. I thought it was interesting, but I wanted to okay. get again. And it's, 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 it's asking what kinds of threats and opportunities, generally speaking, does a grant strategy prioritize? I mean, did you see a, <clears throat> is there a pattern across time? Well, you know, so, yeah, so, so it's, it's very important that you raise this question. There are, <clears throat> when we think about threats, right, because a lot of this work says, that grand strategies response to threats. The traditional notion has been we focus on military kinds of threats, right? Threats of violence. We call that kinetic threats. Um, but that's only one of three categories. In the book, uh, when we developed this, first of all, in our 2018 book, but in the, in, in, in the book, we developed the idea of two other kinds of threats. One kind are called anthropogenic threats. Mm -hmm. Anthropogenic threats come from the unintended consequences of human behavior. So nobody's purposefully trying to create a threat, but as we go about our day doing the things individually or collectively that we find natural, right? Um, the result is a threat. The most obvious example of this is climate change. Nobody sets out to pollute the climate. This is not the objective. But whether it's you know, efforts at deforestation, uh, whether it's how much uh, wood we burn or how many fossil fuels we use, that we create a threat that has to be addressed. The third kind of threat is what we uh, classify as naturogenic threat, which simply stated means threats that come from nature. Uh, when we wrote about this in 2018, and we talked about pandemics as an example of a naturogenic threat, uh, the response was very muted. You know, well, there is Ebola, for example, but you know, we can contain this and, and, and nobody was paying significant attention. In the aftermath of COVID-19, people are now obviously very well aware of the fact that naturogenic threats can have, can have devastating consequences. And so grand strategy in that sense is moving away from a singular focus on, on uh, military threats. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and what Carl Eichenberg called the militarization of uh, American grand strategy, uh, to being confronted by a much broader conception in which the United States, for example, is going to have to reorient its um, view of grand strategy to incorporate issues like climate change, and of course, public health. In American grand strategic thinking, up until the pandemic, there was a clear division between, on the one hand, the Department of Defense and the Allied Security, National Security Establishment, in which you had um, people just focusing on military threats, whether it's, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, et cetera, et cetera, or, or terrorism, okay? And those people in public health who were consistently um, trying to get uh, issues of public health put on the national grand strategy agenda. Mm -hmm. And essentially, since the uh, end of the Cold War, there's been a big partisan divide. Democratic presidents have attempted to incorporate these issues into that agenda. And Republican presidents have resisted doing so. Uh, Peter and I published a piece in uh, the fall of 2020 in a journal called International Affairs, where we talked about 
this pattern. Uh, and it's freely available online. So just, you know, uh, if you want to Google and look for Dombrowski and Reich International Affairs, it'll lead you straight to the article and you can have a look at it if, if you or, or your listeners are interested. And in that context, right, we are now facing a situation where for the first time, I hope, I can't say that I guarantee, but I hope, national security policymakers are going to accept the notion that you have to think about climate change and you have to think about naturogenic threats like pandemics in terms of preparedness. Uh, how does this work its way out tangibly? Well, one of the things we discovered during the early days of the pandemic was nobody could find a mask. Nobody could find a, a, a enough ventilators. We couldn't, we hand couldn't provide, <laughs> yeah, sorry? sorry? Hand, hand sanitizers. Hand sanitizer. Very good. Very good example. Um, why couldn't we get enough of these things? Because we don't produce them. And because our supply chains, our supply chains did not allow us to keep up with demand. In the context of the uh, early days of the pandemic, what did we discover? Who produces these things? Well, the simple answer, you won't be surprised, is overwhelmingly China. Yes. China produces over 50% of ventilators, over 50% of gloves, over 50% of hand sanitizers, over 50% of uh, um, um, all the things that we needed. So now, the issue of supply chain management has become a national security issue. And Biden has already talked about things like, oh, rebuilding America's manufacturing base. Well, when he says that, what he's really talking about is that we can produce our own ventilators and hand sanitizers and gloves and masks and all those different key components. So we're not reliant on, certainly not reliant on the Chinese for our supply. Right. So we're seeing a paradigmatic shift away from these notions in which economic development or the, econ the, the manufacturing base of the United States is a key component that we have to think about when we're thinking about grand strategy. Interesting. So, I mean, in that sense, grand strategies are adaptable or should be adaptable. To they should be. Yeah, yeah no, I think I think that's a key distinction, right? They're not are. Yeah, they should. A, they should be in a place like the United States. What all this has demonstrated is how inflexible American grand strategy has been, and how flexible it should be. Other countries, and this comes back to why study other countries in this kind of vein. Other countries are so much more flexible and adaptive. Uh, than the United States, which is ironic because when you think about American, say, uh, economic policy or economic development, you know, we have always prided ourselves on the fact that the market allows us to adapt very quickly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When it comes to national security policy, we have been incredibly slow to adapt, which is why we get involved in wars like Afghanistan for 20 years or even Iraq uh, for uh, uh, a, sli a slightly shorter period, and mm -hmm. yet we don't adapt as circumstances change. We have become extremely rigid in that regard. So when coming back to your earlier point about a crossroads, well, there's a crossroads for America, broadly defined, but there's also a crossroads for the way in which we think about grand strategy. And our book, uh, Across, Time, uh, Across Type, Time and Space, is a small attempt in a big sea, right? A small drop in a big sea to try and to get American uh, academics and American policymakers to understand that when they look at a small place like Qatar or a small place like Singapore, these are all city states, right? Um, or, or very small states, that we can actually learn a lot from their ad adaptation. Uh, and the way in which they are very, very flexible and developmental. So, you know, 
I know to you guys sitting in, in the classrooms, uh, I seem like a very conservative, you know, stodgy old guy, right? But in fact, in my world, uh, my views are completely radical. Um, just by simple things uh, like think, talking about how the United States needs to broaden the agenda, how they need to learn from other countries, to think about these things in totally different ways, to integrate between issues like public health uh, broadly defined and national security narrowly defined. Um, the problem in Washington is issues change and issues move on and the focus changes and as it does it's easy to discard some of these notions that's why you have to keep hammering away to try and get policy makers to make the kinds of institutional changes that will ensure that the next pandemic we are much better prepared and that doesn't just mean masks and ventilators it means the way in which we conceive of the whole role of the public health system well, how about um, peace? Like, is there space for peace in grand strategies? And what does it look like? Or rather, what are the instruments at the disposal of the state for conflict resolution within the parameters of grand strategy? Okay, so peace is very broad. Mm -hmm. Conflict resolution is much narrower. Okay. I'm going to try. I'm going to try and answer this in terms of peace. Okay. okay. So when we come back to the original question of what, what is a grand strategy, right? we, and I come back to my two definitions of the classical one, which is a very narrowly defined one about winning the war, and the broader IR one. The broader IR one begins with proposition offered by Basil Little Hart in the 1940s, a British strategist, right? And he said, winning... He said grand strategy may be about winning the wars, but it is also about winning the peace. Okay? And that simple distinction, winning the peace, right, has lots of key elements into it, which include issues like democracy promotion. Right? Ultimately, democracy promotion is about the notion that we can, um, we can institute changes in such a way in which we're going to have less conflict because, as we know, democracies don't fight each other. Democracies tend to fight authoritarian regimes of one kind or another. And so grand strategy can have a lot to say about winning the peace in one variant or another if it incorporates uh, the kinds of notions that we find in liberal versions of grand strategy in which it says, well, we have to promote things like democracy and human rights and the rule of law more generally because these are ways of adjudicating conflict that uh, 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 avoid violence. Um, so there are elements in versions of grand strategy that very much relate in a broader sense to sustaining peace. Um, the kind of narrow stuff that you're talking about negotiation, right? also relates to the notion of the importance of international organizations, right? So, you know, pieces, uh, peace can be negotiated bilaterally, but it's generally more um, successful when it's nestled, embedded in a broader international view about what constitutes the rules, the laws, the norms under which different actors should um conduct themselves, uh, the rules that they should accept, the ways in which they should live. In that context, what we, what we can see is the setting up of organizations, not only regional organizations, say ECOWAS in Africa, but also international criminal tribunals, whether it's in The Hague or whether they're uh, ones like uh, specific to particular circumstances like uh, the independent tribunal in the aftermath of the Balkan Wars, the former Yugoslavia, uh, what we can see is that the grand strategies can incorporate in them the development of the kind of institutions that cannot necessarily guarantee anything in one particular context, but can help to ameliorate conflict more generally. Mm -hmm. um, hard to do this 
hard to do this in you know specific contexts where you have what are called ungovernable zones, but still somewhat doable. I have a very close friend who works for the UN and he works on children and armed conflict. He works on child soldiers, uh, telling me stories that as a representative of the UN, you know, he's gone into uh, conflict zones, say in Africa, because most of his work has been in Africa, where he's negotiating with warlords about what they're going to get in exchange for releasing some child soldiers, uh, some children that they're holding and using as soldiers. So whether you're talking about the UN operating at a very micro level, right, with a particular warlord in a particular conflict in a particular African country, or whether you're looking at it in its broadest sense and talking about abstractions like laws and norms, uh, grand strategies can have a lot to say, especially for major powers like the United States, in how much authority and legitimacy we invest in those institutions. Biden wants to, in, in, to, to put a lot into those institutions, not just uh, on climate change, but also with broad organizations like the UN itself, focusing on human rights. That's, of course, a reversal from Trump. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how well that plays out. Um, the UN's role in the world has really become rather limited in the course of the last decade or so. And that's largely because the United States has invested less and less in the UN. I'm not just talking about money, I'm talking about the political significance of the UN. And so people like um, Bashar al-Assad in Syria have been able to get away with the slaughter of his own people because of the ineffectiveness of uh, organizations like the UN in mounting you know, barriers, costly barriers for his behavior. The United States has to stand behind those kinds of organizations if they are to reaffirm any significant role in issues like peace negotiations, conflict mm -hmm. resolution uh, in the decade ahead. So, Professor, why why should citizens in any country care about their state's grand strategy? Do they even have any influence over its course? Well, <clears throat> right. So traditionally, foreign, people don't talk about grand strategy in the press. They talk about... Yeah, strategy. exactly. It's right. like a serious term, grand strategy, only no, like confined no. to the academic so, world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And I am... Um, and, a lot, and I understand that for many of your listeners, even the concept of grand strategy might be a quite, you know, alien one. I was going to yeah. use the word foreign, but that foreign, might yeah. be <laughs> right? But it might be quite an alien one. But, you know, yeah, our job as academics is to stand back, right, and try and give people a view of the big picture. Right. And if if grand strategy drives foreign policy, then they they should understand it. Now, why should they care? Why should they care? Well, let me give you um, an example of why they should care. OK, so America, after the end of the Cold War, decided that as part of its grand strategy, it was going to invest in globalization. Globalization was going to spread American um, values. Mm -hmm. Um, human rights, rule of law, that kind of stuff. But it was also going to create prosperity for not just the United States at home, but for other countries, it would help lift them out of poverty. And the most obvious example of that, of course, is China, where, where American corporations invested billions and billions of dollars on the assumption that it would lift the Chinese out of poverty, they would become wealthier, they would therefore become more democratic, we would therefore have a more peaceful world. It didn't work out that way. It hasn't worked out that way. Why? Because the Chinese became <clears throat> more prosperous, but they did not become more democratic. And instead of being a partner, they are increasingly conceived of in Washington in, a, in an uncharacteristically bipartisan way 
not as a partner, but as either a competitor or an adversary, right? Mm. The, the spectrum in Washington is between are they a, a strategic rival or are they in fact an enemy? Meanwhile, what happened at home to Americans is in the pursuit of this strategy is we deindustrialized. We changed the structure of our economy. Uh, I'm gonna guess that the clothes that you're wearing today, and I'm not just talking to you, Rochelle, I'm also talking to the audience, the clothes that you're wearing today, none of them were made in the United States. Or if you are wearing something in the United States, it's you know something luxurious that costs three times as much, right? But when you go to American stores, you're buying stuff from China, you're buying stuff from India, you're buying stuff from various different places. Even our companies do not assemble, uh, do not manufacture mm -hmm. the materials like an Apple computer or something, right? And it's all assembled in China. When you order your computer, if, if, you, if you buy a computer online and you order it, you can quite often follow, you know, its progress in arriving to you. And where does it start out? It starts out at a port in China. This has translated into uh, a real shifting pattern in the United States between the rich and the poor, right? Because those middle class jobs that used to exist in manufacturing no longer exist. They've all disappeared. So this this change was in large part engendered by an American grand strategy that put globalization at the heart of it. So why should Americans care? They should care because uh, it affects their wealth, their health, their prosperity. It affects the way in the key ingredients, what, what they call it, dinner table issues, right? Mm -hmm. That, that are at the heart of lots of presidential debates. Republicans basically uh, have historically dealt with a constituency that usually did very well out of globalization. Now their supporters are composed of many people who did extremely badly as a result of globalization, right? The uh, white working class poor who lost their jobs. Uh, uh, not only, but largely through the deindustrialization of America. So, from the most abstract notion of grand strategy, we can we can create a link all the way down to the kind of issues that Americans care about and quite often vote on in their own particular um, uh, local, national, and presidential elections. Wow, that was a great example. Thank you for that. You're so, welcome. Professor, um, this has been so interesting and insightful. We can go on for hours, but in the interest <laughs> of time, we will end it here. But before we go, was there anything you wanted to add? And uh, please tell our listeners where they can find you and your latest book or books. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I I hope that the uh, audience hasn't found my presentation dense, that it, they've been able to follow some of the logic and some of the examples. I, uh, I think that, you know, what, what I want to conclude with by saying is that in this changing global environment, the United States mentality has been slow to adapt. Uh, although I have this funny accent, I've lived in this country for, uh, lived in this country. I lived in the United States, I should say, for the vast majority of my life. I'm a card-carrying American, and I think that there are basic lessons that we need to learn in order to adapt to serve uh, our domestic population. I you know, um, am not a fan of Donald Trump, it's probably become very clear, but uh, I, I have a certain amount of sympathy for those people who voted for him, at least those constituents who voted for him, because they got no jobs and they got no prospects. Mm -hmm. And they have to understand, uh, we have to understand, that that's related to the big grand strategic choices that the United States makes. There is a big movement at the moment um, uh, which, which comes under the auspices of a foreign policy for the middle class, um, I believe it's the Carnegie Corporation, 
but I, I, I can't, I'm not sure. But, you know, some of the American foundations are running, you know, significant discussions about what a suitable foreign policy would look like that would help the restoration of the American middle class to give those people who lost, you know, property ownership by uh, in one generation an opportunity to have that so that their kids will live better than they did just the same way every American generation has done. So it's important for me that people understand my work in that context. The book is called, called uh, Across Type, Time and Place, uh, pardon me, a top Across Type, Time and Space, uh, American Grand Strategy and Comparative Perspective. It's cheap, 20 bucks. Not bad. <laughs> book nowadays. Is it on uh, Amazon? <laughs> uh, it's you can find it on Amazon. You yeah. can find it at uh, Cambridge University Press, okay. um, and uh, it, it's great for a day's reading at the beach. I've tried it; it works. So, <laughs> so um, and um, I can be reached uh, by email at my email address, which is r e i c h s. So reiches at rutgers.edu. Great. Professor Reich, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again. Thanks for inviting me. Bye-bye.